Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Friday, August 11th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great listening over there. Definitely guarantee you'll find something over there to listen to. I also want to continue to remind you to take a look at uh, the last link in our show notes. It is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Send, Go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can commence establishment of a Christian classic education-based school to provide a trustworthy alternative here within our community. So go ahead and click on the link. Pastor Jay has provided pretty thorough dis- description, obviously much more thorough than I just gave you, of what we're trying to do. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us, and we'd ask you to pass the link along so others can do the same. All right, well, with it being Friday, we're going to go ahead, we're going to do our Bible reading, and we're going to go ahead and do our last Bible study of the week. We're moving on into section three of this, of what what we would say John chapter 11 is broken down down into these four sections around the death and resurrection of Lazarus. So let's go ahead and let's jump right in. So we're going to go ahead and open up this morning segment with the sixth day morning prayer called the gospel. Let's pray. O thou most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy goodness infinite, thy compassions unfailing, thy providence boundless, thy mercies ever new. We bless thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. Weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. Poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. Blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy Son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us amen all right and our morning uh devotion from spurgeon's morning and evening uh for august 11th is, the text for it is from job 29:2. oh that i were as in months past numbers of christians can view the past with pleasure but regard the present with dissatisfaction They look back upon the days which they have passed in communing with the Lord as being the sweetest and the best they have ever known. But as to the present, it is clad in a sable garb of gloom and dreariness. Once they lived near to Jesus, but now they feel that they have wandered from him, and they say, Oh, that I were as in months past. They complain that they have lost their evidences, or that they have not excuse me, that they have not present peace of mind, or that they have no enjoyment in the means of grace, or that conscience is not so tender, or that they have not so much zeal for God's for God's glory. Excuse me. The causes of this mournful state of things are manifold. It may arise through a comparative neglect of prayer, for a neglected closet is the beginning of all spiritual decline, or it may be the result of idolatry. The heart has been occupied with something else more than with God. Excuse me, more than with God. 
the affections have been set on the things of earth instead of the things of heaven. A jealous God will not be content with a divided heart. He must be loved first and best. He will withdraw the sunshine of his presence from a cold, wandering heart. Or the cause may be found in self-confidence and self-righteousness. Pride is busy in the heart, and self is exalted instead of lying low at the foot of the cross. Christian, if you are not now as you were in months past, do not rest satisfied with wishing for a return of former happiness. But go at once to seek your master, and tell him your sad state. Ask his grace and strength to help you to walk more closely with him. Humble yourself before him, and he will lift you up, and give you yet again to enjoy the light of his countenance. Do not sit down to sigh and lament, while the beloved physician lives there. I'm sorry, while the beloved physician lives, there is hope. Nay, there is a certainty of recovery for the worst cases. All right. Well, our reading today, we've finished Ezra, so we're going to be in Nehemiah. We're going to be reading from Nehemiah 1 through Nehemiah 3, verse 14. Uh, we'll be reading 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 24. Uh, Psalm 31, verses 19 through 24, and Proverbs 21, verse 4. So hear the word of the Lord, Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, and I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and remained from the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who remain from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it happened that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have worked in utter destruction against you, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been banished were at the ends of the sky, I will gather them from there, and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause me, my name to dwell." They are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear your name and make your slave successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah 2 now it happened in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it is good for the king, and if your servant is good before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen, queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it was good to the king to send me, and I gave him a set time. And I said to the king, It is good to the king. Let letters be given for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the house of God, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me with, sent with me commanders of the military force and horsemen. Then Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, and it was a very great evil to them that someone had come to seek the good of the sons of Israel. 
So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon spring and on to the dung gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the spring gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my animal to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I turned and entered the valley gate and turned around. Now the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who were doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the calamity we are in, that Jerusalem lies waste and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been good to me, and also about the king's words which he had said to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard it. And they mocked us and despised us, and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I responded to them with a word, and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore he, we, we his slaves will arise and build. But you have no portion, right? Or no, I'm sorry, but you have no portion, right, or remembrance in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 3, verses 1 through 14. Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers the priests and built the sheep gate, and they set it apart as holy and made its doors stand, and they set apart as holy the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. Now the sons of Hassanah. Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and made its door stand with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mehezabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the service of their masters. Jo Joiada, the son of Paseah, and, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and made its door stand with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Malatia the Gibeonite and Jadon the Mar Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, also made repairs to the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhaiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs, and next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaph, made repairs opposite his house, and next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab repaired another section and the tower of furnaces. Next to him, Shalem, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanok, I'm sorry, Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They built it and made its doors stand with its bolts and its bars and 1,000 cubits of the wall to the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Reshab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He built it and made its door stand with its bolts and its bars. All right. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 24 verses. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say is a concession, not a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God one this way and another that. 
but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband... Sorry. Oh, I just got lost. Oh, there we go. And a woman, sorry, verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Alright, Psalm 31, verses 19 through 24. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have worked for those who take refuge in you, before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you for help. Oh, love Yahweh, all you his holy ones. Yahweh guards the faithful, but repays fully the one who acts in lofty pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for Yahweh. And finally... Proverbs 21, verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the fallow ground of the wicked, are sin. All right. Well, that is our reading for the day. Um, again, for the evening segment, we'll be coming back and we'll be um, continuing on in our study of John chapter 11. Uh, we'll be getting into the third section, and I'll explain those sections to you when we get into the evening segment. But let's go ahead and close out with prayer. This one is called God Honored. O God, praise waiteth for thee, and to render it is my noblest exercise. This is thy due from all thy creatures, for all thy works display thy attributes and fulfill thy designs. The sea, dry land, winter cold, summer heat, morning light, evening shade are full of thee, and thou givest me them richly to enjoy. Thou art King of kings and Lord of lords. At thy pleasure empires rise and fall. All thy works praise thee, and thy saints bless thee. Let me be numbered with thy holy ones. Resemble them in character and condition. Sit with them at Jesus' feet. May my religion be always firmly rooted in thy word, my understanding divinely informed, my affections holy and heavenly, my motives simple and pure, and my heart never wrong with thee. Deliver me from the natural darkness of my own mind, from the corruptions of my heart, from the temptations to which I am exposed, from the daily snares that attend me. I am in constant danger while I am in this life. Let thy watchful eye ever be upon me for my defense. Save me from the power of my worldly and spiritual enemies, and from all painful evils to which I have exposed myself. Until the day of life dawns above, let there be unrestrained, unrestrained fellowship with Jesus. Until fruition comes, may I enjoy the earnest of my inheritance and the first fruits of the Spirit. Until I finish my course with joy, may I pursue it with diligence. 
and every part display the resources of the Christian and adorn the doctrines of thee, my God, in all things. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope this time um, has been edifying and has helped to equip you, keep you saturated in the word. I hope you have a wonderful day. I would continue to um, implore you to do to do all you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you this evening. Have a good day. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Friday, August 11th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, we are going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 11 this evening. We did our reading this, our basic reading this morning, and we're going to be continuing our study in John chapter 11. Um, I think it's going to take us all the way through next week, God willing, and maybe into the following week to finish up John 11, finish up this part, and then get in to the private ministry. Again, we, we, we went from Jesus's public ministry, um, which, you know, the crux of it, though, though it really stretches back. I mean, he engaged with, um, Wow. I completely forgot the guy's name. I'm sorry. John chapter three, um, where he's engaging the guy he calls the, the, the teacher of the Jews. Wow. I can't remember the man's name. I went completely blank anyways. Um, and then we saw him engage with the Samaritan woman and, and, uh, John four, but then we really saw the engagement both in Jerusalem and, and, um, but in Judea and then in Galilee, um, through his public ministry here, um, and from John five through John 10, um, here, and this last part here is somewhere, um, in the four months between the end of John 10 and the final passion week. So this is somewhere in there that we're going to be going, but let's go ahead. Let's get on into it. Well, let's open up with prayer and the prayer we're going to open up with is called the prayer of love from Valley of vision. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thy name is love. In love receive my prayer. My sins are more than the wide sea's sand, but where sin abounds, there is grace more abundant. Look to the cross of thy beloved Son and view the preciousness of his atoning blood. Listen to his never-failing intercession and whisper to my heart, Thy sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. Lie down in peace. Grace cataracts from heaven and flows forever, and mercy never wearies in bestowing benefits. Grant me more and more to prize the privilege of prayer, to come to thee as a sin-soiled sinner, to find pardon in thee, to converse with thee, to know thee in prayer as the path in which my feet tread, the latch upon the door of my lips, the light that shines through my eyes, the music of my ears, the marrow of my understanding, the strength of my will, the power of my affection, the sweetness of my memory. May the matter of my prayer be always wise, humble, submissive, obedient, scriptural, Christ-like. Give me unwavering faith that supplications are never in vain, that if I seem not to obtain my petitions, I shall have larger, richer answers, surpassing all that I ask or think. Unsought, thou hast given me the greatest gift, the person of thy Son, and in him thou wilt give me all I need. Amen. And isn't that true, that in Jesus Christ, that's all we need. That is for very sure. And that, that's for very sure what Lazarus was thinking when he came out of that tomb. Or at least I would guess. I'm sorry. I, that's just a Wayneism, But but I, I would think that would be where his head would be. All right. Our evening devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for today. Uh, is, is uh, The text is from 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Everlasting consolation. Consolation. There is music in the word, like David's harp, it charms away the evil spirit of melancholy. It was a distinguished honor to Barnabas to be called the son of consolation. Nay, it is one of the illustrious names of a greater of names of a greater than Barnabas, for the Lord Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Everlasting consolation. Here is the cream of all, for the eternity of comfort is the crown and glory of it. What is this everlasting consolation? It includes a sense of pardon sinned, pardon sin, 
a Christian man has received in his heart the witness of the Spirit, that his iniquities are put away like a cloud, and his transgressions like a thick cloud. If sin be pardoned, is not that an everlasting consolation? Next the Lord gives his people an abiding sense of acceptance in Christ. The Christian knows that God looks upon him as standing in union with Christ, with Jesus. Union to the risen Lord is a consolation of the most abiding order. It is in fact everlasting. Let sickness prostrate us. Have we not seen hundreds of believers as happy in the weakness of disease as they would have been in the strength of hail and blooming health? Let death's arrows pierce us to the heart. Our comfort dies not. For have not our ears full often heard the songs of saints as they have rejoiced because the living love of God was shed abroad in their hearts in dying moments? Yes, a sense of acceptance in the beloved is an everlasting consolation. Moreover, the Christian has a conviction of his security. God has promised to save those who trust in Christ. The Christian does trust in Christ, and he believes that God will be as good as his word and will save him. He feels that he is safe by virtue of his being bound up with the person and work of Jesus. All right. Well, like I said, we're continuing on in the Gospel of John um, and John chapter 11. And, and we talked about it. I, I, and I said in the morning segment, I told you I'd, I'd break down the sections again, just roughly. So our, our four sections of here, John uh, chapter 11. Um, and the, the entire chapter deals with this um, death and resurrection of Lazarus. And so the first section, uh, verses 1 through 16, um, that, that MacArthur calls, and I've told you that before. So the overall chapter, MacArthur calls the resurrection and the life. And he calls it that because Jesus makes clear in his conversation with, with Martha, um, says very clearly, I am the resurrection and the life. He makes one of those I am statements. Um, which is perfect because that's exactly what it is. And that's, he, that's what he portrays. I mean, if you, if you've missed that, that's what he portrays here as he raises Lazarus from the dead in front of many, many, many witnesses. Okay. Including the Jews. Now remember how John the apostle, when he says Jews, who he's referring to, he's referring to the Jewish religious leadership. So he does it right in front of them. Those that have been hostile to the point of trying to kill him since John 5, okay, that I've, that I've hammered home constantly, that they've wanted, and even though, like I said, they should know him, they, they should have been able to identify him as the Messiah before anybody else did. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But the fact is, they're resisting him. He doesn't fit their agenda. He doesn't fit their agenda. He's he's actually throwing a monkey, monkey wrench in their agenda. So we've got these four sections. The first section was the preparation for Jesus's arrival. And we saw that it was sickness for the glory of God is what MacArthur calls it. Um, and we saw the critical man, Lazarus, the concerned sisters, Mary and Martha, and their reaction and sending a message to Jesus. And then the cautious disciples, when Jesus said, hey, we're going we're going to Bethany. And, and again, just to let you know, so they were in Bethany and Perea, which is, which is across the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. Well, Jesus is going to go across the Jordan River and to Judea. Bethany is 15 stadia, approximately 15 stadia outside of Jerusalem, a little less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, so, and, and the fact is nowadays, like I told you, you, you have trouble telling the difference between Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethlehem and because they're all right next to each other and they've grown together in, in sprawl. Okay. In, in our modern day sprawl. But so again, they were concerned because again, they had already tried there at the end of 10, they, they wanted to kill him. They, they went to try to apprehend him again and he disappeared from them and he headed out to Bethany and Perea. And, and he, and he was out there and he had a very, very productive burgeoning ministry out there as people were coming to a saving faith in Christ out there, as, as it says in the end of John 10. So here he's wanting to go back and basically walk back into the lion's den, walk back into high threat level. I mean, it's like, okay, DEFCON's going to the max. And, and again, I don't, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I served. So I don't remember which DEFCON is, is, is more critical. So who cares? doesn't really matter here. But, but the thing is, he's about to walk back in to very high risk situation and, and it scares them. But of course, like, like I said, we saw Thomas step up and go and show his bravery and said, we need to go with him. 
we should die with him. Basically, we should die with him. And I'm paraphrasing Thomas, but we should die with him. Of course, Thomas is being pessimistic, but he's willing to walk into that. At least so he claims then. So then we've got the second part, verses 17 through 36, which is the arrival of the Savior. It's the Savior arriving there in Bethany to see the family. Okay, And this is a family he loves. Like we saw Martha, the, the message the sister sent is, the one you love is sick. Okay, But again, we saw that Jesus already knew he was dead. And we saw, and we worked out kind of the timeline. There's a really, very real po possibility that he, either he was dead before the message was sent or he was dead immediately after. So fact is, one, there really was no way, and not that this denies what Jesus chose to do, but I'm not sure Jesus could have made it back there. Well, I, actually, that's not true. Because he has the full power of God, sure he could have. But the fact is, it, it had to have taken at least an, a day for the message to come to him. And then it would have been a day travel back. And by that point, because by this point that he gets there, we see that he's already been four days in the tomb. Okay? Um, and, and we talked about that. So we saw Jesus is coming. We saw this second part, the arrival of the Savior. We saw him showing up and and. Parts three and four, which we're starting today, part three is the actual miracle itself, the raising of Lazarus, and part four is the aftermath of it, okay? So we completed last night the arrival of the Savior. We saw his coming. We saw his claims to Martha, because Martha asked. It said, if you'd been here, he would have lived, and he makes the claim, and that's where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he goes on to make those claims that um, making clear, let me back up. Um, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? So, and, and let me clarify again, because it's really easy to read this and go, okay, he's basically repeating the same thing. No, he's not. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, meaning they will be resurrected. Talking about physical death there and physical life. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. That's spiritual death. They will not spiritually die. Do you believe this? Again, they will not suffer spiritual death. So that's what he's asking. And, and she makes her, you know, she makes a clear confirmation. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, the one who comes into the world. Well, that's great. Except she still showed by her saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Showing that, that she still has a little bit of limitation there here in her belief because she's not believing that he can do anything now. And we see that in our verses today. She makes that clear. And then she has Mary, tells Mary, Mary comes out. And of course, in that, and this is shows his compassion, Mary comes out and like we see the Jews, the Jewish leadership, follow her out there. And a lot of them professional mourners. And they're wailing, but they come out. And, you know, of course, Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, they, 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 acknowledge his ability to heal which makes sense and we're going to see that in our verses today even from the jews we're going to see that in our verses today um, because he's just healed the man more blind that happened in jerusalem not two months prior so you know th this is that that was the latest hot thing so they will know that that he can heal but they're not grasping that he can bring back to life so we get into our verses today and we're going to, we're going to deal with two different parts. So we're in this part three, the raising of Lazarus. And there are five P's here. And that, believe me, the, the alliteration here is MacArthur's not mine. Um, as I've always admitted. Um, and we're going to deal with the perplexity in verse 37 and then the problem in verse 38 and 39. So verse 37, and I'm going to just read all three verses. So, Verse 36, actually, I'll go back there. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him, of verse 37. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead four days. So let's talk about this real quick. So 
verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So again, there's an acknowledgement there, even though they argued with them because he is, you know, so we're seeing from verse 30, 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, so again, this is still of these group of Jews, these Jewish leaders who have been hostile to him for day one and, and wanted to disagree. I mean, and remember, I talked to you about that, that um, the man born blind made that clear syllogism, that clear argument that this man, Jesus, gave me sight. Only a person, so that's major premise, minor premise, only someone from God could give somebody sight. Conclusion, therefore, this man Jesus is from God. And they belittled him, they showed sarcasm, and they threw him out of the synagogue. Yet here they are in verse 37, and this shows you the hypocrisy of them. Verse 37, but some of them said, so this thing, these still Jewish leadership, could could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, so they're just acknowledging it, who opened the eyes of the blind man, have kept this man also from dying. So they're acknowledging he can heal. And they're saying, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying if he was here? But that's the thing. He wasn't there. But of course, they're then making the argument, well, why didn't he? And in some cases, it may have been a sarcastic, well, why wasn't he here? If he knew the man was blind, they may have even known, though it doesn't say, that he waited two days before he headed there. Now, again, we know, and he was very clear to the, to the disciples. We saw that back, or the 12 back there in the section about the cautious disciples. He made clear to them that Lazarus was dead and that he was glad that that was so. Not that he was glad Lazarus was dead, not that he was glad the family was going through the, through the, the grief, but that God would be glorified and that he would be glorified, that their strength, their faith would be strengthened. Their faith would be strengthened because they're about to watch him resurrect the dead, not just heal somebody, though that that by itself should be amazing to them. But but they're they're and not not necessarily the 12, but the people in general are acting like no big deal because he's healing all over the place. It's like I told you last night. Basically, he has wiped out disease in the area in in this area we've got to realize that the impact his ministry had on just the general health of the area okay but so again they're they're going well couldn't he have prevented this from happening so there's your perplexity what you know it's kind of like why wasn't he it's almost asking the question why wasn't he here to prevent this but we hit verse 38 and verse 39 the problem so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. So let's deal with some of the basics. This was a cave. Now, that was the thing. This was common, um, particularly among the uh, among the more well-to-do. And we've talked about that, that there's really clear, there's really pretty good indication that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, were from a pretty well-off family. Okay, pretty well-off family, pretty well-known. Thus, thus why the Jews, the Jewish leadership, was over here and attending. That that wasn't that wouldn't have been been the common thing for some random shepherd. And I'm not trying to belittle shepherds, but they were not shepherds. Were considered kind of the some of the lower of the uh, on the social rung. The Jewish leadership wouldn't have gone out to to weep and mourn with the family. Of somebody like that they wouldn't have that's that's what tells us that they're a more well-to-do more well-known family and of course like we said you know hey they were there and some might have been acting more as professional mourners some of them might have actually cared but the fact is this was this was an opportunity for them to be seen in public and and for their um the the jewish leadership and and for people to see their power and prestige and honor okay so some of it was probably as much driven by that as anything else. And that's just kind of my opinion, but it fits the character they've manifested since John five, <laughs> you know, John chapter five, that's what we've seen. But so of the more well to do, typically they would bury within caves. Now, some of them would have been natural. Some of them would have been carved out of the stone but they would have been carved out, floor flattened, and shelves carved into the wall to place the bodies on. In a, in a lot of cases, 
um, the tomb would be for multiple bodies. It'd be like for a bunch of people in a generation of a family um, or for multiple generations of a family if the, the cave was big enough. But let's look back at the beginning of that. So I wanted to get that kind of out of the way. But let's look at the beginning. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Again, I've always taken this as being him being deeply moved and upset and saddened because Martha and Mary are weeping and, and um, you know, Lazarus has died and all that. Maybe that's some of it, but honestly, this is the same thing as where we dealt with in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her crying and the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. This is, this is a grumbling. This is an anger. This is a frustration with them. It's a frustration of what sin has produced. Because you've got to understand, not only is Lazarus dead, which is a product of sin, not necessarily his particularly, but is a product of sin, the sin corruption in the race of man, but the grief it's causing the family, the grief it's causing to other people, not necessarily in the family, but the, the, the social situation that it has engendered, that it is engendering. And here are these, here are these who, who truly, I don't have any problem believing hypocritical Jewish leaders that are out here symbolically mourning this person because he's from a well-to-do family. All of that being the product of sin. So that's what we're talking about here. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's irritated. He's saddened. He's weeping at what sin has produced. He's also weeping for his friends, people he loves that we know Mary, Martha, Lazarus, that all of this has occurred because it's occurring because of sin, but that they're going through, but he gets there and note his terse reply, remove the stone. Now you and I sit there and go, Oh, big deal. But we got to look at this. We got to look at Martha's response here. And, and in a couple of ways, Martha, the sister of the deceased, so we know, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells for he has been dead four days. So again, this is Martha confirming for us. And I'm not saying this to bash Martha because you and I had been in the same place. Martha confirming that she doesn't believe that Jesus is going to do anything for her brother or can do anything for her brother at this point. And what she's, what she's alluding to is the fact that the Israelites in the first century, they did not embalm their bodies. They did not embalm them. They would wrap them in a lot of cases in the wrapping. They would wrap, soak the wraps and sprinkle on the body perfumes and stuff like that to, to um, kind of mask the odor as the body decayed. But because they didn't do any kind of embalming or preserving of the body, having placed him in the cave and closed the cave up and you're four days down the road, he's already started. He's already started decaying and he's going to stink. I mean, barring what Jesus is about to do, it would be stinking and it would be stinking such that the perfume would not overpower it. It would have overpowered the perfume and they'd have gotten this miasmic cloud pouring out of this cave as they opened the stone, as they removed the stone. Um, and again, oh, I forgot to say, so, and, and not that it really matters, but the, the stone, typically they would try to form a, an oval or a round stone, a round flat stone that could lean up, that, that would be over the opening as a closing to prevent thieves and, and, and animals and stuff from that, like that, from going after bodies. Um, and the reason it was round is so they could roll it back and forth. It would, they wouldn't have to manhandle the stone. Um, so it acted like a rolling door, but again, so she's showing, you know, no belief that Jesus can do anything about this, um, can raise her brother that, that her brother's got to be rotten in there. But, you know, it's also posited among the commentators. And I, I think it's a valid thing at the same time. I, I would think she's probably sitting there not wanting that door to open because she didn't want to see her brother like this starting to rot. She didn't want her brother exposed to anybody else seeing him needing to rot. That's just not, that's just not something that we come contemplate positively. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. When my father passed away, um, we had to fly there. Then we had to have memorial service. And then we had to transport him um, a number of hundreds of miles for him to be buried in his family plot there from Georgia to Mississippi to be buried in Mississippi in his family plot. Well, needless to say, and, and I'm not trying to be gross talking about my father or anything, but needless to say, our, our funeral people, um, and a number of, uh, a number of different jobs that they do. Part of it is they preserve the body so that the body doesn't break down like that. I don't know how I would have reacted had we now, like then just wrapped him in something wrapped him in an, in, in an appropriate funeral wrap, um, and sprinkled with perfume or even doused with perfume and what he would have, what he, what it would have been like for the, for the, for the open coffin that was at the memorial service down in his hometown, uh, which was, you know, eight, 10 days after he had passed. I don't even want to think about that. And that's what, that's what Jesus is basically telling her to do. Remove the stone. Again, he's not doing that to be cruel. Please don't misunderstand, but he's being very, very clear. Remove the stone. He's making clear. I'm going to do something. Here's the problem. They're not believing. And he's upset by this with everything. You got to think about it. Everything he's shown to this point. And please understand that. That's what we've got to understand. And like I said last night, all the things he's done, we, we got to talk about it. I, I, you know, he healed, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, um, and made clear, um, let's see, he healed a paralyzed man to prove that he had the power to forgive sins. You know, um, he healed the man born blind to prove that he was the light of the world. He brought spiritual light to the spiritual sight to that man. He brought light to that man. He brought him out of the darkness. Um, in this case, he's going to resurrect this man to show that he is the resurrection and the light. Like I, all the miracles he does. And, and that's the thing. If you really sit down and I, I, I've never done it, but I think it would be an interesting study to sit down and record all the miracles recorded, even record where it says, and he did all these things or like, um, in one case, um, where is it? Um, when they go to ask John, when the John sends his, his disciples, when he's in prison and sends his disciples over to Jesus, um, to ask if he's the one they should be waiting for. And he tells him to go and tell, tell John what you've seen and heard that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the dead and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. I mean, again, what a list right there. So to record all of those across all four gospels and, you know, of course, coordinate between the ones that are the same thing. What a mass, what a mass of miracles on top of the fact, and that's not even including the fact of places where he'd go through and people would just touch him or he'd go through and he'd just touch where he talks about that he sat down and healed or he went out among and healed. And we don't know how many he healed there. The miracles, the, the miracles, the saturation of miracles within that area in that three year period was massive. It was overwhelming to that area. So, like I said, this resurrecting Lazarus wasn't even necessary to make clear that he is the Christ, the son of God. But in this case, he, he does it. Think about it. He is the resurrection and the life. He is showing clearly that what he has been preaching, that only through him they can have eternal life, but in him they will be raised on the last days for judgment. Like we, like you talked about, um, I think it was John 7 and 8 and 9, somewhere in there. He was talking about that they would be raised up. I would raise, He was talking about he would raise them up, that he is going to laud them, that he is going to raise them up, and that none would be lost that he is going to provide them resurrection and life, that he is, he is the resurrection and the life. And at the same time, he's making clear to hit the, the 12 that man is going to take him and crucify him. He's going to allow himself to be crucified, but that he is going to rise again, making very, very clear here 
And so that's the thing. He steps up and says, remove the stone. Now, don't get me wrong. You and I would respond exactly like Martha did. But what an amazing miracle is coming down the pipe that they get to see. And, and again, you know, honestly, the more and more I see, the more and more the reactions you see from the, the Jewish leadership, from Mary and Martha, who, who are truly saved people, but still show a limited understanding, which Jesus has to clear. Well, for you and I, how do we clear up those misunderstandings? We spend time in the word. We stay in the word. We comb through it. We chew through it. We, we, we masticate it. I'm not trying to be gross there, but like a cow chews its cud. You, you know why it does that? And the cow has multiple stomachs and it'll pull it out and chew it more and put it back in a stomach and it'll go over and over. It does that to ensure that it gets every bit of nutrient out of the food it takes in. You and I have to do that with our, with the Bible. We need to do that with scripture. So we take every bit of nutrient out of it, every bit of spiritual nutrient out of it. We can, we must do that. And that's how we don't stumble around like these did not grasping the fact that we're in the presence of our Lord and savior. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today. And that's going to do it for the Bible study for this week. Um, we will pick back up God willing here in John 11 and in part three, the raising of Lazarus, um, on Monday evening. I hope you have a great night. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. We're going to close out with the six day evening prayer called the mediator. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hope in thy word there. We see thee not on a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, Not depart ye cursed, but look unto me, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none else. They that know thy name put their trust in thee. How many now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall, the freeness, riches, and efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee, and will through eternity exclaim not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator, in whom all fullness dwells, and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To him we look, on him we depend, through him we are justified. May we derive relief from his sufferings without ceasing to abhor sin or to long after holiness. Feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our consciences. Delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. Be constrained by his love to live not to ourselves but to him. Cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments, but sensible of our desert and impressed with the number and greatness of thy benefits. May we bless and praise thee at all times. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have a, yourself a wonderful night, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. I hope you're having a looking forward to a great weekend. And again, if your weekend plans don't include um, worshiping with the saints, change them. You need to be worshiping with the saints. All right, have a great night. God bless. Mm -hmm.